Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 157. We're going to hear a little more about Dick King and Indungeni Kakoki, who rode out of Durban carrying a dispatch from besieged British commander Captain Smith, who, as you know, was surrounded by Boers and in real danger. On the 24th of May, 1842, King and Kakoki snuck out of Port Natal, heading to Grahamstown in the south. There was a thousand kilometer journey, which was going to take 10 days. Averaging 100 kilometers a day on a horse was some feat. Indungeni Kakoki had already given King his Zulu nickname, Mlamlangkunzi, which loosely translated means a peacemaker amongst bulls. This was regarded as a mark of respect and admiration, and there's quite a lot to admire about King as well as Kakoki. They had agreed to take a dispatch to Lieutenant Governor Colonel Hare in Gramstein for Captain Thomas Smith, who'd been shamed by the Boers at the Battle of Congela, which I covered last episode. King was young and adventurous. He was an elephant hunter and a trader and came to South Africa as an 1820 settler at the age of six. He was a frontiers man and an excellent rider who could and did turn his hand to anything, it appears. Indugeni Kakoki had worked for King for a few years by this time. There's also been a great deal of hoopla, disinformation and propaganda about King's ride. The popular view of Richard Dick King over the decades has been moulded by the Durban Public Memorial. It is an equestrian statue on the Esplanade, now Margaret Ngadi Avenue. It's always been a popular Durban tourist landmark. But missing from that main statue is, of course, Ndungeni, who appears to have been written out of the telling except for a bronze block on the side. Later, during an interview with famous historical archivist and magistrate James Stewart, Indungeni said he'd ridden with Dick King to as far as Buntingville, where fatigue and severe chafing forced him to abandon the ride. Buntingville is a Methodist mission station 15 kilometers southeast of Mtata, just short of halfway between Durban and Gramstown. The main Dick King statue presents the sole figure of King as the heroic, if not exhausted, rider, but there is a missing Indungeni on his horse. Protesters who defaced the statue in 2015, of course, had no idea about all of this. They were just throwing paint at all colonial-era artifacts. Equal opportunity statue painters, you could say. Dick King was also remembered in a series of 10 granite road markers or pylons placed along the route that he took, erected in 1940, and tracked the journey of Dick and Ndungeni. Some of these markers have been protected at local museums or collections since. They were sited at Isipingo Beach, Port Shepston, Mzumvubu River, Port St. John's, Old Bunting Mission, Pedi, and Trumpeter's Drift. King lived on his farm, Isipingu, which was a 6,000-acre piece of property outside of Durban, and built the house that became known as Dick King House. A suburb of Isipingu is named after his farm. King went on to marry 18-year-old Clara Noon in 1852 and fathered seven children. Then later in the 1850s, he became a pioneer of the sugar industry, establishing the first sugar mill at Isipingo with his two brothers-in-law. There's a lesser-known, more modern bronze sculpture of this epic ride, created by Llewellyn Owen Davies in 1983, which was sold at Cannon's Auctioneers at Hilton for 36,000 rand at the time. And this statue featured Indogeni and Richard. For the English settlers, the Natal pioneer stands tall as a folklore hero of the early 19th century when Durban was very young, a kind of South African Paul Revere because he made his epic ride. 
The challenge for us these days is that both Dick King and Ndungeni Kakoki refused to speak about their trip afterwards, saying it was what was expected of them and that was about it. King was quite sick for two days during this ride, but when he was pressed in Grahamstown to explain how he had managed to make it, he said, What is there to tell? I did no more than any Englishman would do for his country. I said I would get the message through, and I did it. And that's all there is to say. Stiff upper lip would be an understatement. So, we'll have to say it for these two men. Both were expert swimmers and managed to cross over 180 rivers that were mostly flowing strongly during their ride. And had the two failed in their journey, the history of Natal could have been very different. It's thought that the British fort would have been overcome and perhaps the Secretary of Colonies and War back in England, Lord Stanley, would have let that be that. Instead, the die was cast. A marble plaque on the City Hall at Grahamstown records Dick King's arrival there on the 4th of June, 1842. Apparently, the night he entered Grahamstown, weary, sleepless and covered in mud and dust from his journey, he came straight to his father's house, who lived in Grahamstown to brush up hurriedly before he took the dispatch to Colonel Hare. Family members have corroborated what happened next, including his niece, Mary Ann McHattie. She was in Grahamstown at her grandfather's at the time King arrived and wrote later that, Uncle Dick went then immediately to Colonel Hare. He would not even wait to eat anything, although in a famished condition. He delivered the dispatch to Colonel Hare and gave him much verbal information, but... Overcome with fatigue and sleeplessness, he went off to sleep before the colonel had finished questioning him. When an attendant was about to awaken him, Colonel Hare said, Let the man sleep. In recognition of his ride, he received 15 pounds, while the inhabitants of Port Natal collected another 70 pounds. It's what happened next that has etched his ride in the consciousness of particularly English-speaking KwaZulu-Natal residents. You see, back at Captain Smith's fort, the Redcoats were now in deep trouble. By the 24th of June, they were subsisting on biscuit crumbs, a handful of rice a day. Beef had run out. They were down to a slither of rank horse bultong. They were starving to death and disease was rampant. Every day, Captain Smith would wonder, had King made it? There was no way of knowing. On the other side of the lagoon, Pretorius's army at Congella numbered over 400 men by now. Many had ridden to Durban from the Modar, Rit, and Orange rivers, but still the Pretorius hesitated, considering it unwise to assault the British fort head-on. Starve him, was his view. He had no idea that the British reinforcements were imminent. Commander Andres Pretorius also sent two separate messages to the leader of the Transvaal Boers around Potchestrum, Hendrik Potkita, but Potkita hated Pretorius and refused to send his burghers to help. In fact, by the time this series of events ended, Pochita would not have sent a single man to help the Natal Boers. Had he done so, the next phase of this story may have been utterly different. Pochita was sick, suffering from heart disease. So on the 22nd of June, the Marisburg Volksraad found out about this and sent a follow-up letter to the Landros of Potchestrum instead, asking him directly for help. Before the Landros could act, the arrival of the Redcoats was going to shift our story's gears. It was midday on the 24th of June when Boer lookouts spotted a schooner called the Conch rounding the bluff and sailing into the bay. It was a trading ship, not a warship, so the Boers relaxed. They shouldn't have because the wily and wicked English had a surprise up their sleeves. 
Crouching below decks were 100 grenadiers of the 27th Regiment and a command of Captain Durnford, and a few others were on deck but dressed in civilians' clothes. Trickery and deceit. How very English. Also below decks, looking out of an open porthole, was Dick King, VIP passenger on the conch, which the British had chartered from Captain Bell, who you've already met, for the princely sum of £390. They'd left Algoa Bay a few days before. It was a difficult journey, not because of bad weather, but the crew on board were less than happy about the short voyage up the southern African coast. They were on the point of mutiny. The British Army treatment of the sailors was partly to blame. Also partly to blame was the fact that as crew the cargo was virtually worthless. Usually the crew would earn a portion of whatever cargo was carried. This time it was just a bunch of soldiers. At the bay, Port Captain Edmund Morwood had found himself quite happy to take the Boers' orders, and he rowed out to the conch on a longboat, joined by the Boers' military secretary. They both tied the longboat to the conch, and both Morwood and Meneer secretary climbed up a rope ladder, stepped on deck, and nearly died of fright. A sea of redcoats greeted the two men. Morwood then yelled, I am a friend of the British, which must have angered his Boers' sidekick. Then he almost fainted and asked for a mug of water. Captain Durnford told Morwood to deliver a letter to Pretorius at Congella, saying he wanted to send a doctor to Captain Smith's camp. He was sure the situation there was beyond dire, and wanted to make sure that his men weren't going to be racked by disease. Pretorius refused the request. At this point, Smith had no idea what was going on. He had spotted the ship, but didn't know that reinforcements were on board. That changed when Durnford fired a rocket into the sky, a very military message. Smith fired his own rocket back. Thus the origin of the meaning, apparently, of the phrase to get a rocket. Pretorius failed to act. The British remained on the ship, which should have notified the Boers that something much bigger was afoot. The very next night on the 25th of June, the British warship the Southampton anchored outside the harbour. She was a very different vessel to the conch. A 50-cannon Beermoth with 300 soldiers in the hold and on deck commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Josias Clouty. What a shocker for the Boers. Not only was this a very serious threat, its cannons could easily find their range into Congella, but also the shocking fact that the British were being led by Josias Clouty, he of Cape Dutch origin, one of their own, a skander. Abraham Josias Clouty was born in the Cape but had gone to school in Holland and then returned because his father, Peter Clouty, believed the Cape would remain Dutch. This didn't stop young Abraham Josias from becoming Cape Governor Lord Charles Somerset's aide-de-camp in 1814, and then serving in the British Army in India. Clouty returned to the Cape and was an important cog in the immigration of the 1820 settlers, operating as the English Chief of Logistics at Algoa Bay. He then served in the British Army fighting against the Amakosa during the Sixth Frontier War. Clouty was now a 48-year-old highly experienced military commander and more than a match for Pretorius and like his Boer brethren, believed that actions spoke louder than words. So, early in the morning of the 26th of June, Clouty ordered the Southampton to sail closer to shore, right up to the infamous Durban sandbar, from where she opened fire with a broadside straight into Congella and the point. The Boers had piddly little four-pounders of their own stationed at the point and the bluff, but these were pop-guns in comparison to the Southampton's massive onboard cannon. While they exchanged fire, the conch, which was a much smaller vessel, made it across the sandbar and into the lagoon proper. 
There were 135 men on board under Clutie. Another 85 men were huddled in boats that were being towed behind the conch. These were led by Royal Navy Officer Commander Hill. The Boers fired everything they had at these smaller boats and then hastily retreated into the Congella lager. They had managed to kill three English soldiers in the boats and wound three others in more than 20 minutes of constant fire. This despite the hundreds of rounds they fired and the shells from the four-pounders, a rather underwhelming result. The company of 27th Grenadiers formed up in three sections on the beach in the bay. From my analysis of the maps, they landed where the Durban Yacht Mole is today, near the Esplanade. The section commanders were Major W.G. Durban, son of Benjamin, after whom Durban was named, Lieutenant Colonel Josias Cloutier, and Captain Durnford. After forming up, they marched northeast across the mangroves and behind the point to Smith's camp, arriving there at 4 p.m. The Boers made no attempt at attacking this force, thus breaking the first rule when opposing an army conducting a landing by sea, trying to stop it on the beach. Pretorius appears to have missed the trick, and many of his men thought so too. A group of 20 burghers promptly wrote to the Volksrat in Maritzburg, complaining about his leadership and asking him to be fired, to be replaced by Gert Rudolf. The Volksrat rejected the suggestion, but the point about failing to protect Durban was noted. Meanwhile, back at Smith's camp, the newly arrived grenadiers were aghast. It may have been winter, but Durban is warm in June, much warmer than the Cape, and the smell that greeted the soldiers was nauseating. Swarms of flies buzzed around the rotten and blackened horse meat that hung in strips above the tents. More flies buzzed around the offal and hides discarded on one side of the camp, where 26 wounded men were lying immobile. Many of these had dysentery. Some had amputated limbs, the bloodied stumps being worried over by still more flies. During this month-long siege, the Boers had fired hundreds of cannonballs into the camp. The British had fired back. At least 30 British soldiers had been killed and five Boers during this month-long siege. Still, the British had clung on and now help was at hand. The morale of the town improved still further the next day when the Mazeppa reappeared in the harbour. The families of the English traders on board had made it back home after sailing up to Delagoa Bay, then back south where they had met with the conch en route and turned for Durban once they realised reinforcements were being sent. Pretorius and the Boers had a decision to make. The might of the British army was now in Durban, but they had over 400 burghers at hand, most of whom wanted to fight on. And yet now it was an equal fight, and that's why the Boers decided it was too equal and retreated. Pretorius rode ahead of his men back up to Cowie's Hill on the main road to Maritzburg. As we all know about history, these movements of people in southern Africa never happened in a vacuum. One of Pretorius's commanders by the name of Mokke was so angry about the loss of Durban, he and his men just kept going back to their homes west of the escarpment, west of the Drakensberg Mountains. They didn't stop at Cowie's Hill. Lieutenant Colonel Josias Kluti, being Dutch-speaking, had led the soldiers to Congella on the 28th of June. They were aware the Boers had retreated, so the march to the deserted settlement was a rather relaxed affair. Waiting for them there was Dr. Wilhelm Skoltz, two Boer minders, and a German called Meneer Guinzes. After rifling through the camp, Kluti spotted a group of Amazulu men watching the goings-on from nearby. Kluti then sent a message to Pretorius up on Cowie's Hill, telling him that he had granted amnesty to any Boer who submitted to British rule. Pretorius sent a message back to inform Clutie that he was prepared to discuss peace terms 
but there'd be no submitting to British rule. Pluti was dealing with another issue at the same time, and this was to cloud his next decision. He needed food, and the Boers had taken off, leaving no cattle or any form of food behind. The 300-plus men of the 27th Regiment needed to be fed. This is where the Amazulu onlookers came in. Kluti told them to go and fetch the Boers' cattle and horses and to bring them back to the British. He assured the Amazulu they'd be doing the service of the British, and if any of the Boers resisted, the British army would protect them from the burghers. Kluti said they should not attack the Boers unless the trekkers used firearms to recover their property. Well, you can guess what happened next. Up until now, the Amazulu had regarded these two different armies quite impartially. As soon as Josias Cloutty made them a formal offer, when it came to the treasure called cattle, well, the gloves came off, so to speak. Furthermore, the Boer treatment of local Amazulu had not been honourable, and that was going to make matters far worse. An Amazulu warrior party descended on three different Boer homesteads around the bay, killing Dirk van Rooyen and Tinus Gerhardus Oosthuizen. Van Rooyen and Oosthuizen had tracked the Amazulu war party from their farms between the Umlazi River and the Ilovo Rivers but had been ambushed. The Amazulu returned to the farms and then stripped the Boer women, beat them and chased them into the bush. They were found three days later by a Boer patrol, shaken and terrified, but alive, enduring the cold nights without clothing. So it was a double irony that von Rooyen and Oosthuizen had been attacked because they had both refused to join the Boer's commando in Durban fighting the British. The Amazulu then killed Cornelius van Skalkweg when he tried to prevent them from taking his cattle. Pretorius heard about these attacks and warned Cluti that he'd pay for stoking violence. Cluti fobbed off the Boer leader, stating they'd brought this disaster upon themselves. Things moved quickly. Amazulu king Mpande had been told about what was going on and he sent an emissary to meet with Cluti in Durban, who arrived on the 8th of July 1842. Mpande said he wanted to help the British defeat the Boers. His warriors were assembled, ready for the word to attack Peter Maritzburg. Kluti replied that Mpande should stand down. The last thing he wanted to do was to cause the level of warfare to rise, particularly with his government so sensitive about what the Amazulu were doing. But it gives you an idea how quickly allegiances shift. It was only a few months earlier that Mpande had been technically an ally of the Boers fighting against Dingan. It was time for peace negotiations. Kluti said all Boers would be granted amnesty. They could keep their farms and horses and rifles. But the Boer leaders like Pretorius, Prince Lu Berger and Servas and Michiel Breda would have to face a trial. Kluti said they'd leave the Boers alone, but the British would rule the area between the Mgani River in the east and the Mlazi River in the west, along with the all-important Durban port. The Volksrat met on the 10th of July 1842 and held a public meeting to discuss the British peace terms. As usual, tempers frayed, temperatures were high, and surprisingly, almost half the meeting wanted to accept the terms, which of course meant selling some of their leaders down the river. Also surprisingly, Pretorius supported the terms mainly because he believed the British could not impose them anyway, and he was right. The public meeting then voted to agree to the British proposal, and a delegation was duly sent by the Volksrat to meet Kluti at Cowie's Hill, and an agreement was signed on the 11th of July, 1842. The terms were ratified by the Volksrat on the 15th of July, and the next day, Kluti received a memorandum from the Boer Rat, which outlined the way forward. A commissioner could be appointed to oversee the day-to-day affairs of the Boers, they said. A representative council should be elected, new boundaries drawn up, 
and the sale of muskets and ammunition to the Amazulu should be banned. Because everyone knew everyone back in the day, the Boers suggested that Josias Clutie's younger brother Henry be appointed as commissioner. Josias Clutie sailed out of Durban Bay on the Isis on the 21st of July with four companies of his troops. A few days later, the Joseph Norse, a brig, was sent to the Cape with a heavily armed crew on board. She was anchored in the inner harbour and served as a floating British fort until June 1844. Captain Smith remained in Durban with 275 men from the 27th Regiment, 12 men from the Cape Mounted Rifles, 24 artillerymen and 20 engineers. This tiny force was supposed to assert British rule in Natal. What really happened is that the Boers reverted to independence, ignoring the British, who never managed to apprehend Prince Luberga and the Van Breeders. Pretorius had been granted amnesty in the meantime. Also in the meantime, the Boers carried on raiding the Amazulu, including the biggest landowner, Gert Rudolf, who raided Zulu without permission from Captain Smith. Six Amazulu men were killed in one skirmish. Rudolf didn't bother informing Smith of the raid at all. What this meant for everyone was a state of confusion. No one knew who was really in charge. The Boers thought that their own Volksraad had sold out. The British force in Durban was pathetically small. In reality, the Boers actually continued to rule Natal, while the British ruled Durban. Captain Smith called himself the commander of Natal and sent two wagons to Marinsburg to reclaim lost British goods. They returned empty, a handful of rusty old muskets rolling around in the back, along with a Volksrad message. That's all we have. They may as well have said, And what are you going to do about it? For the next year, the Boers were going to conspire against Smith. Cape Governor Sir George Napier was wallowing in a sea of indecision about what to do about Natal, and British soldiers began to desert their posts at Durban. You can imagine why. Here they were, in the remarkable African countryside. Opportunities seemed endless, versus being harangued and sometimes lashed by their own officers who were all from the upper classes, therefore rude, imperious, and not always of the highest intellectual capacity. The attraction for these young Englishmen of joining the local farmers and what appeared to be a perfect sense of freedom had to be a draw card, not to mention the fact that the Boers were bribing these deserters with food, clothing, shelter and firearms. So, we'll leave this part of Southern African history to stew for the next year and return to other matters, including what the Basutu were up to, how the Transorangia region was developing and what was going on with the vendor. So if you could rate the podcast on iTunes or any of your other favorite platforms, that helps elevate its visibility. And you can head off to desmondlatham.blog where I'm going to load an update about this episode. You can also contact me from there. Until next, tot ziens.